0: We've been going through this book, the book of uh, the book of Hebrews. We've been taking our time, and today what we're going to actually do is we're going to pull down some of what we talked about last week, and then mold in with some some new scriptures. Uh, I wanted to, uh, if we can go to the next slide, we uh, our slide puncher thing that you see me up here banging all the time is now broken. I don't think it's from me banging it like that, but we're going to look at Hebrews chapter four, twelve to sixteen. Revealing and healing. This is important. So, little review. Next slide. Little review is uh, we uh, looked at the whole overview. First of all, we did that at the very beginning, so I just want to remind you of it. Chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is better than angels. This is the argument of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 3 and 4, uh, Jesus is better than Moses. End of chapter 4 and verses five, uh, chapters 5 through 7, basically, is Jesus is a better high priest. Chapters 8 and 9, Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant. Chapter 10, Jesus is a better sacrifice. Chapter 11 through 13, Jesus is the author of a better salvation over and over and over. What is he saying? Jesus is better. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is at the top. There's nothing that compares to him. Now, <clears throat> this chap, this passage today is a... Uh, um, it's a passage that, that can grip you, it's a passage that can be discouraging and encouraging at the same time. So let's go to the next slide. When I was a kid, there was a TV show on that was called Hee Haw, right? Right away, that gives you a clue about that TV show. But I was just like a little middle schooler, and sometimes my family would watch this show and it, it was basically kind of a country and Western show with some, a lot of comedy and some songs and stuff like that. And, and I want to tell you, I went back and looked at it a little bit. You know, for those of us who are older, we look back at those good old days when, you know, TV it was so funny. Let me tell you, it wasn't. <laughs> Hee-haw, was not that funny. I remember laughing at it, but I just as I watched it again, I was like, really? Really? Now, I had some fond memories, right? But also some crushing memories. You know, there, there was a there was a little skit in Hee-Hall where the guy would say, That's good, and then he'd say, No, that's bad. That like he would say, I inherited a thousand dollars from my uncle. And the, the guy with him would say, Well, that's good. He goes, No, it's bad. Why? My uncle died so that I could inherit that thousand dollars. Oh, that's bad. No, that's good. Why is it good? Because I was able to pay for his funeral, so that no one had to pay. I was able to show him, Oh, well, that's good. No, that's bad. Why? Because I don't have the thousand dollars. You know, and it just it was good, bad, good, bad, back and forth. Okay, that's a little bit of today's past passage. It's good. And I don't want to say it's bad. It's frightening. It's good. And yet it's frightening. I I remember watching that show with my dad and going, man, this is so funny. And my dad was like, it's not that funny. And I said, well, listen to all the people laugh. And he says, Robert, that is recorded laughter. (laughs) And when they do the jokes, they turn the laughter up.
1: And I just remember,
0: you know, just as a little, like, 11-year-old kid seeing his world fall apart in front of him, they're faking it? And he said, yes, they are. There's no live audience. That's called canned laughter. And from then on, I was like, oh, hee-haw's dumb because they use canned laughter, and then I found out everyone uses it. So then, you know, my world just was destroyed. So today we have a diversion of that. That's good. That's bad. That's good. That's bad. We kind of have a little version of this. We're coming up on something. We, because, why? Because this talks about something that we all can struggle with at a very basic level. We all have a fear of being found out. We get that from our forebears. Adam and Eve, it's universal. We hate criticism because it means we're being found out. Now, I know sometimes people can criticize and they're wrong, and I understand that, but I'm not as afraid of wrong criticism as I am of right criticism, criticism that reveals me. I hate criticism that's right. I hate to be found out. We all do. John Paul Sartre said this. Next slide. We hate criticism because we hate to be looked at the gaze of the other that someone else sees me for who I am. It just occurs to me, this only can happen at First Church. We just went from hee-haw to Sartre. We went, I mean, the, the full culture right there. We are all about culture with a capital K right there. Adam and Eve, they hid themselves. We continue to do that today. We use other things like social media we create a persona that we want to be. But just like Adam and Eve, God comes looking for us. He comes looking for us. He comes searching. And not only does he look for us, he looks at us. And that's going to take us to our first point. Next slide. There is a terrifying standard. There is a ter- and this is strong. And I purposely made this strong because it is strong. We have a God who comes and he looks at us and he sees us. Next slide. Verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So there is this terrifying standard. You know, Jesus said, he said this. He said, look, you you, you are to be perfect as my father is perfect. And we have a God who sees us, not just what we do, not just our actions. He sees our motives. He sees our thoughts and intents. This is incredibly scary because you can run, but you can't hide. Parents, remember, remember when your kids were little and some of you haven't gotten there yet and that, that's okay, but they were little and they would just wither under your searching glaze, glaze, gaze, gaze. help. <laughs> they would wither. You could look at them and say, did you really do that? And you just see them go, yes. I'm sorry, you know, they, yeah, and that lasts about three or four months, and then they learn <laughs> how to hide it from you. And that goes on for the rest of their lives. Just get ready for it. All right. But not with God. He sees our pretensions. He sees right through it. He sees our heart. He sees our motives. So when Jesus says, be ye therefore perfect, as my Father is perfect... This is a terrifying, that's a terrifying standard, right? That's a terrifying standard. We look all the way back, Genesis 15, when God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a covenant with you. And what's interesting in that passage is Abraham is not thrilled about this idea. Why? Because he knows if, if there's a covenant between me and God, which one of us is most likely to fail, Right? And when they would cut a covenant, the penalty for failing was death. One person would walk through this blood where these animals have bled and would say, may you do unto me as we have done unto these animals if I break this covenant. Can you imagine God says that? And then, go, okay, Moses, it's your turn. And Moses is like, ah, blah, blah, blah. No, right? In fact, we're told that there's this terrible darkness that descends on him, terror, and God puts him to sleep. Why does God put him to sleep? I'll be honest, I think, think, and this is my opinion, it's so he doesn't run away. Because can you imagine you've made a covenant with the most powerful being in the universe, and you're going to walk through blood, and you're going to say, may you do unto me as we did to these animals if I let you down, God. Moses knows three minutes in, I'm a goner. He knows it, right? And what happens? What does scripture tell us happened? Some of you know this, so it's no big surprise, but it's always striking. God walks through the second time. God walks through the blood. And he says, you may do unto me what we have done to these animals if you break the covenant. God says, I know you're gonna break it, so I'll take the fall. I'll take the penalty. Through my son Jesus, I have walked through the covenant, I've walked through the blood and now you broke it, I'll pay for it. That is amazing, it's amazing. So Jesus says be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. Not only your actions but your motives are judged. That means that some sort of cosmetic form of goodness just doesn't work. The outside can look good but the inside can be unclean. Pure deeds require a pure heart. And I I read, I was reading the other day a, a couple of theologians, and one of them was saying the greatest danger for religious people is not sinful deeds, but their good works that cause sin in their lives. How does that happen? How does the good works cause sin in their lives? Well, what happens is when you're doing something good for the wrong reasons, it will corrupt you. You start to feel superior to other people. You start to feel comfortable condemning other people. You're fine with wishing bad things to happen on people that you judge are the bad people. They're not like me. They're not one of my kind. They're the bad ones. You start to feel that you've earned a greater standing with God because you've done things for him. You lose lose sight of the fact that you come to him empty-handed. Matthew 23 Matthew 23 is a sobering passage. It is Jesus talking to the most pious, the most religious, the most well-behaved, law-keeping people in the whole world. They tithe, they kept the law, they did everything right. They did all the right things. They were the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus in Matthew 23 basically starts punching them in the face over and over and over and over. He says to them, if you read that passage, you'll see it. He says to them, woe to you. He pronounces woe upon them. You guys are going to get it for this. It's like boink, right? He says, you teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you're hypocrites. Bam, he punches them. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. He says, you're greedy, and all you think about is you the whole time, bong, right in the f- bong. Is that a good word for punching in the face? Bong, right? He says, you're blind. You think you're the ones that see the best. You're blind. How? He says to them, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish and then the outside also would be clean. What does he tell them? It's got to start on the inside and it's got to work its way out. That's how God changes people. If you have children, you know, you can dress your kids up and make them look wonderful. But you know the little demon that's inside that suit, right? You know, you know. Because it has to start from the inside and work its way out. And Jesus keeps going. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, you're like a tomb that has just gotten a fresh coat of paint. It's so white and clean looking, but inside it's just death and bones. He says, you're full of death. You're snakes. Your works are worthless. He's talking, you know, he's talking to what in that culture, they were the top. They were the most admired people. In our culture, it would be like, poly, no, not politics. Uh, law, no. Uh, actors and act, no. No, not <laughs> philosophers is a vote, no. <laughs> pastors, maybe. Right? No. <laughs> I, know, I know too many pastors. No, but I mean, it's just, he looks at these people, they're at the top, and he calls, and he just starts laying it out on them. Bam, bam, bam. This is you, this is you. Death, bones, snakes, Dirty, dirty deeds done dirt cheap. You are, that's what you are. That's what you are. A little dc there for you guys. I just want you to know that. More culture, right? <laughs> so Jesus, he does it. What is he telling them? He's telling them this. You want recognition. And he tells them in that passage, why do they do this this way? You do this this way because you want recognition. You want to be seen. It's all about you. It's me, me, me. And that is so easy to do. That is so easy for a pastor to do, right? The end of our service, we pick up the chairs and every once in a while I'll go over and I'll stack a few chairs and wonder has anyone seen the pastor stooping to do this so much below his job description? Right? Just out of the goodness of his heart to kind of feel what it's like to be one of those people. Right? And here's the thing we have people that do that faithfully, and I love them for it. Because it's not, there's no recognition. There's no recognition. I need to stop sharing with you guys how I feel sometimes. I, Mm. I had had COVID two weeks ago, and I'm still really struggling. I'm still really struggling with being super tired, and I'm realizing that this puts me in a dangerous spot when I speak. They want people to see them, and what's happening there, just what I said earlier, their good works are corrupting them. Their good works are corrupting their hearts because it's all about them. It's all about them. It's all about me. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus comes right at them. Again, he interprets the law for the people whose job it is to interpret the law. And he starts challenging them. He says, hey, you've heard, thou shalt not murder. And he goes, let me tell you what that really means. Now, who, who has the right to say this is exactly what scripture means? The writer. The writer. And they recognize what he's doing. He says, you've heard, you you shall not murder. Let me tell you, when you look at another person and you wish evil upon them, you wish they were dead. He said, you've done it. You broke the law. You've heard, thou shall not commit adultery. Well, let me tell you something. When you look at a woman and you think, man, I would like,' He says, you've done it. You've done it. He's hitting them right where they live. He says, if you desire her, then you're guilty. He says, if you, if you pray and you teach for the recognition, it's worthless. He says to them, you heard that you're supposed to love. Let me tell you who you're supposed to love. Your enemies. Love your enemies. He sets the standard. It's impossible. He tells them, this is why all your good works don't work. Because it's all about you. In the uh, commentary, I have the commentary, have one of my commentaries that I have that I've really enjoyed this time is by an uh, um, uh, Anglican scholar named N.T. Wright. And let's go to the next, no, no, don't go to the next one. I'm just gonna read it. Um, N.T. Wright writes, writes this. At the, end of, uh, at the end of the passage we're just looking at, he says, there's no escape. The text is quite clear. There's nowhere to hide. One day we will have to make an account of our lives before God. He says, oh my, Hebrews is not a very relaxing book. You know, it's, so, next slide, thank you. There's one terrifying standard, but there's two ways of escape. This is my way of telling you that it's a two-point outline, but I'm actually gonna give you three. I'm cheating on you, all right? So here we go. One terrifying standard, we see what the standard is. Now, two ways of escape. Next slide, this is from, This is verse 12, for the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. This is the idea that, uh, uh, that the word looks, it pierces, it sees. Now, when he says the word to them, they're thinking of basically the Old Testament. Now, at the time of the writing of Hebrews, there may have been a few of the New Testament books starting to go around, but also the teachings of Jesus have gone everywhere and they would consider that the word also. And so he says, and that be the written word. Why did God give the word to us? It's his invitation. Let me just say it in a way you probably haven't heard before. It is God's invitation to be beautiful. To become beautiful. It's his invitation to become a work of art that he is in the process of creating. Like an artist, he takes a lump of clay that is nothing, And he creates a masterpiece. Ephesians chapter 2 stresses this. He takes what is broken and he mends it. He takes what is sick and he heals it. He takes what is dying and he gives it life. This is why he gave us the Bible. And if, (laughs) if I could get a little personal, like I never have before. Over 42 years of marriage, I am struck by how God has worked in my wife's life. Oh, that sounds terrible. (laughs) Because she's been the greatest influence on my life other than God. But the other day I was upstairs and she has a desk and I was getting something in that room and I looked on her desk and the Bible is open. There's a notebook and there's three by five cards. And she's written things on those three by five cards corresponding to the passage that she's reading. And my first thought was, I should not read this. This is private. My second thought was, oh, I'm going to read it. (laughs) And I read some of the things she wrote, and uh, I was struck. I was struck by what she had written, because I noted that she would talk about a verse, and then she'd talk about that verse, what that verse, how it impacted her, her life. And God has done that, God has worked over the course of her life. Her life is a miracle. You see, the Bible was reading her as she was reading the Bible. And this is something I think we we could think about. Let's go to the next slide. This is important, I think. We must allow the Bible to read us as we read the Bible. Because the Bible searches. It's a two-edged sword. It gets down to the tiniest of places. It works its way in. And verse 12 says, it judges. That's the Greek word kritikos, where we get critique. You see, we can look at the Bible for encouragement, and it does encourage us at times. But also sometimes it reads us, it critiques us. It points things out. It makes us a little uncomfortable. That's the purpose of it, is to do that. Why? Because when you're creating a masterpiece, it's not always easy there's work to it. It is sharp, but it will always cut for healing. Always for healing. Um, I love National Public Radio. There was a guy who was on it uh, quite a while ago, um, and he he uh, he wrote a weekly column for lots of newspapers, uh, um, and under the heading it was called the Ethicist, and people would write in ethical problems, or they'd call in to EP. NPR on his radio show with these ethical problems. And then he would walk them through that. What, and he would just talk about right and wrong and those types of things. Uh, his name is Randy Cohen. And uh, when he wrote, he left NPR and then he stopped, stopped working for newspapers after about 12 or 14 years. And when he wrote his last column... Uh, I'm going to put it on this. Let's go to the next slide. I want you to see this. This man is is an ethical leader. I say with some shame, there has been no such gradual change in my own behavior. He would encourage people to change to become more ethical. He says, there's been no such gradual change in my own behavior. Writing the column has not made me even slightly more virtuous. What's spending my workday thinking about What spending my workday thinking about ethics did do was make me acutely aware, acutely conscious of my own transgressions, of all the times I fell short. It is deeply demoralizing. As I have grown old, I have grown more and more remorseful. When he talked about that column, you know what he said? He said, this was affecting me in such a negative way that I quit it. I quit telling people what the right thing to do was because I wasn't doing it. Isn't that interesting? And and I, I love this guy. He he was he had great answers. He, he he had great thoughts, but he admitted it's not changing me. See, this is what we're talking about: change from the inside out. People can tell you ethical things to do till they're blue in the face, but until your heart changes, it's not going to take. It might take for a little bit and make you feel a little good. But after a while, let me tell you, living ethically is hard. And you're going to want to quit unless something has changed. Encouraging people to live by high standards of conduct didn't work for him. He realized it had no effect on his heart. The Bible tells us there are costs associated with following Jesus. And we have to understand that. But also there are changes that will happen. One such change will become this. You will become more and more lovely over time. You will become more and more empathetic, more loving, more pleasant. You will change as you allow the Bible through the the power of the Holy Spirit to work on your life. You will change. So the big question for us is, are we changing? You will become more and more humble over time. The more time we spend walking in the light, the more we see our faults and seeing God's love for us in spite of those faults is incredibly humbling that will happen. Paul Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. He talks about this struggle that he's having. And that brings us to the second point. Next slide. The second point of point number two. Ways of escape. There's the written word and there's the living word. See, when Paul looked at himself in Romans chapter 7, he was crushed. He looks at how he wants to do the right thing, but he does the wrong thing. And and it just keeps going back and forth. And he's very eloquent in the way he says it. And then he says, wretched man that I am, who will free me? Who will free me from this? I'm a wretched man. And then he says, thanks be to God who is delivering me through Jesus Christ, my Lord. He says, there's a process that is started through Jesus Christ. The completion is coming. There's this process that I will be cleansed. I will be totally set free. And so the Bible points things out. It points things out to us. We see the issue, but the solution is Jesus. He is the cure. And in the word of God, the focus is on the cure. It's on Jesus. This is why in this book over and over, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. He says it at the beginning, he says it at the end, and he says it throughout the middle. You've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. That's your only hope. Writing to these people who are struggling, they're going through difficult stuff, their lives are being torn apart, and they're thinking, I I feel like quitting. And he says to them, he doesn't say, come on, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, get it together, quit crying, you baby. No, he says, I understand. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's the only thing that works. So he says, Jesus is the cure. Next verse, slide, next slide. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin we have this great high priest, the high priest and all high priests, he's telling us. Why? Well, just remember, we've talked about this a couple of times, but not everybody was been here. They, they had this, this, this ceremony that was a picture. It was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It was when the sins of the whole nation was, in, in essence, kind of in a, in a metaphorical way, it was brought to, brought to Jerusalem. And the high priest went through this huge deal to cleanse himself, and then he would go in only once a year into the Holy of Holies. What would he do? They would take these two, you know, like a lamb and a goat, two goats, and they would sacrifice one, and the high priest would go in, and and he would sprinkle blood on the altar in the Holy of Holies only once a year. What is this? It's a picture. It's a picture of the fact that sin, sin is incredibly serious. There is a penalty. Sins must be dealt with. They must be taken away. So he does that, he sprinkles, so that now there's this opportunity for forgiveness for sins. And then what does he do? He takes the other goat, and he puts his hands on his head, and it would be this huge ceremony out in the temple courtyard where there would be thousands, I mean thousands, tens of thousands, sometimes more than a million there, uh, as, as Israel grew. And he would, he would uh, recite a prayer that would put the sins, he would pray the sins of the whole nation over the past year onto the head of this goat, right? And I always, I joke about it, I know, but it now has become a nuclear goat, right? This goat has the sins of over a million people residing on its head. So what do they do with this goat? They take it out into the wilderness. Take it away, deep into the wilderness. What's the picture? Your sins are taken away. You're free, your sins are taken away. Your sins have been forgiven, but they also, not just forgiven, they've been taken away. They're gone. I, I miss this. this is always. I remember as a little kid one time telling my dad, I'm sorry, I did something. And he looked at me and he said, it's the seventh time you've done it. When are you going to take care of this? And all of a sudden, it hit me. It was a stunning thing as a child. My dad's keeping score. My dad's keeping count. Of my sins, of my sins, and I wasn't—I wasn't a Christian. I didn't know anything. I didn't even know if I expressed it as sins, but I just had this horrifying moment that I had a father who was keeping a record that somewhere there was a notebook that he had that had everything that I'd done wrong, and that was a frightening, horrifying thing. And God is teaching them: not only are your sins forgiven, they're taken away. They're taken away, and this is a picture of what? This is a picture of Jesus. When Jesus shows up on the scene, John the Baptist says, behold, it's the Lamb of God who's gonna take away the sins of the whole world. Behold, the Lamb of God. Take away the sins of the whole world. And so, Jesus now is this ultimate high priest. Why? Because he's the lamb that was slain, and he's the goat that takes the sins away. He does it all. And scripture tells us he does it once for all. It doesn't ever have to happen again. Later on, we're gonna see in Hebrews where God says, I've put them, I don't even, they've put them out of a place where I will remember them. I will never, God will never, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God will never say, this is the seventh time. When are you gonna get serious? He won't say that. Because if, if, if there's been openness and confession between you and God, you come up to him with that sin, and he's going to go, well, this is the first time to me. Because the other six are gone. They're gone. This is incredible. He's the offering that was slain. He's the high priest that offered himself. And he's the scapegoat, that goat that takes away the sins of the world. He's the, he's the great and final mediator between God and man. And he knows And we've talked about this some before. He knows what it feels like to be tempted. He knows it. He knows what it feels like to suffer pain. He knows what it feels like to suffer heartbreak. The, The writer's telling us the word, the word shows us. And then we have this living word, Jesus, who now, next slide, gives us this. Let us then, because of what I've told you about Jesus, approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is what happens when a person becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Suddenly, this is us. We can approach, it says, in confidence. Why? Because our great high priest, who is like us, has provided the way. Our sins have been with, dealt with. The, the debt has been paid. God sees every motive in our heart, and that can be frightening. But now it becomes comforting because he's, it's the eyes of love. We now have this confidence. That word confidence in the Greek has this idea of openness. It's freedom. It's lack of fear. And one part of it is, it says to be able to speak directly and plainly without having to guard your speech at all. God says, what is it, my child? And you can just say it. You can just say it. This is what's so great about the book of Psalms. What do those psalmists say sometimes? They go to God, and what do they say? They say, you, I feel like you left me. I feel, like, I feel like you're doing me wrong, God. I feel like you are not caring for me. You're not showing me love. All you're showing me is, is the back of your hand and pain. They went with full confidence to say exact. And God says, yes, that's what I want. That's what I want. Openness, freedom, lack of fear. You can speak to me plainly. We have that now. Knowing, he says, that you will receive mercy and grace. And I know these are kind of abbreviated and not totally explaining the words, but just because you can hang on to that. Mercy is not getting from God what we deserve to get. That's what mercy is. Grace is getting from God what we don't deserve to get. You see, mercy steps in, and it takes, it takes what we deserve. It takes the penalty. Grace steps in and gives us something we don't deserve because we didn't earn it. Joy and peace, eternal life, those are given. And so now, Scripture, when it shows me something about myself that I'm ashamed of, I don't have to be ashamed anymore. It's been taken care of. Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. The crushing gaze becomes a healing gaze. The penalty is paid. You are free. This is the rest that he's been talking about in chapter four. Here it is. This is where real life change happens. You can go out from this place knowing that you are wholly exposed and you are not rejected. You can go out from this place knowing that you are completely known and you are completely loved. Do you see, do you see how when you begin to understand this, you begin to come to grips with this, you begin to take a hold of this, this can change your life. And it changes your life from the inside out. I am completely known and I am completely loved. Then I have a confidence now. I have a confidence that can be complete. There is nothing that someone else can do to me that takes away my standing in Christ. It can't happen. So I can be confident in that. I'm secure. And it's not that I'm better than any other person. Far from it. I have now come to grips with how bad I am, and I have been freed from the sin and the shame that comes from that. Someone can confront me when I'm wrong, and they can say, Bob, you did this, and it was wrong. And I can say, yes, it is true. I'm sorry for doing that. Please forgive me. And they say, okay. And my next thought is, "Um, is that it? Yeah, just that. I'm like, okay, great, because there's a whole lot of worse stuff that you don't know about, and I'm just glad I don't have to deal with it with you right now, right? Because God now has said it's taken care of. It's taken care of. Um, I know... I know I'm I, I thinking about this, and I know it can sound a little judgmental, but there was a church I used to go to, and uh, there was this older guy, and uh, he was incredibly grumpy and negative all the time. And you know, at that church, there were all kinds of things that happened over the years that shocked people. This is terrible. Right, But here's something that never shocked them. This guy did not seem to be changing at all. He seemed to be getting worse. Now, he came faithfully. He gave faithfully. He served on committees. He dressed nice. He obeyed the rules but this is the shocking thing to me that no one thought was shocking. He didn't change. And, and you know, people, I talked to a couple of people. I just said, what is the deal? This guy's really giving me the gears sometimes, and he says mean and hurtful things to me. And they're saying, oh, don't take it to heart. He's just grumpy. He can be a little mean, but don't take it seriously. And people made excuses for his behavior. You know, here's the thing. No one ever said, oh, he cheats on his wife, but don't, t- it's not serious. It's not a big deal, right? Oh, she's a thief. I mean, she steals. you gotta watch, watch your stuff around her, cause she will steal. But it's okay, it's not a big thing. No one said that, right? Somebody, some, there was there was, it was a, oh, we gotta do something about, over here, oh, we're gonna do something about this. I said, well, this guy, he's mean. Ah, you just understand, just understand. And I know that came from a good place for a lot of those people. They were trying to be loving. But it struck me, nobody's outraged about this. This is not a big deal. Nobody said, you know, like they see something and they go, we have to take action. We've got to do something about this. This is really bad. And I, I'm not saying that was wrong. But that never occurred to anyone with this guy. Nobody said, hey, you know, we've we got to do something. He's mean to people. That's not Christian. Nobody said that. Nobody was outraged with what people, other people did and said, and they called themselves. I mean, people would be outraged and say, oh, they call themselves Christians. But there was no outrage where someone said there's a person who calls himself a christian and he does not change and that is, a, is astounding N- nobody said that you see we're supposed to be changing and it's a process you know when paul says thanks be to god he 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 uses a tense that shows that it's a something that happened and now there's a process that's involved He understands that in terms of how Jesus Christ is is changing his life. It's the same thing for us. It's a process. And there's ups and downs sometimes. I know sometimes we take two steps forward, two steps back or whatever. You know, we, we, we struggle. That's understood. But over the long haul, over the long haul, we're supposed to be growing and we're supposed to be changing. Because if we see that God knows us thoroughly and still loves us, and if we read his word and allow his word to read us, and if we have this great high priest who became the ultimate sacrifice for us. And now in him, we receive mercy and grace from the throne of God. We go to the throne and God says, I've got mercy and grace here for you. This is what I have for you. Then we have to change, it's inevitable. Because now through the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God's word, change is possible in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word, that it grips us. It grips our hearts. We see more clearly. It takes away the blinders sometimes that we have in our lives that fool us. It takes away the deceit that so easily leads us astray. And God, we thank you for that, because that's what we need. Lord, we thank you that you change people from the inside out. It's a heart change. Help us to be willing. Help us to make time to allow your word to read us and allow your spirit to bring it to our attention and impact our hearts. And we thank you, Lord, that that is possible now, that that can happen and will happen as we do that. We yield to you this morning. As we leave this place, Lord, help us to understand who we are in you. Help us to understand our standing with you, and how that impacts the way we live our life, the way we live at home, the way we live at work, the way we live in our neighborhood, the way we shop. It impacts every aspect of our lives. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.